I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us on another episode. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik, and I'm joined today, popular guest on the show to my right, senior ballistician Jaden Quinlan, and across the table, fellow marketeer, Preston. Thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, you bet. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe a little Quinlan's Corner episode. Oh, yeah. dear. You yeah. guys did put me in the corner. I didn't yeah. notice that. So, uh, yeah, that's for not, those... It was inadvertent, a... but it turned out great. <laughs> for those okay. uh, 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 listening, not watching, we do have Jaden... But uh, into a corner, and as Preston called out, we'll we'll uh, lovingly refer to this as Quinlan's Corner because what we have teed up for you today is a Q and A episode. So we get a ton of emails to podcast at hornady.com, comments in the videos, submissions to our general inquiry on our website. Just a bunch of uh, people reaching out, Instagram, Facebook, and we took some of the popular questions uh, and some of the good questions that were brought up once we started our ballistic study. So we're going back now to uh, in the mid-20s, uh, we, we did our first episode of kind of a brief history on ballistics, and then we studied internal ballistics and measurement methods and external ballistics, and you know we're getting into drag and, and BC, and uh, we're going to continue this study, but we thought it was a good time at this point to take some of those questions, um, get them out here on the table, and uh, just uh, get them answered for you guys, because a lot of people brought up some good points. And uh, we didn't, you know, we certainly won't have time to get to all of them because that would be a pretty long podcast, but uh, we'll definitely take a good stab at it. And after this podcast, if you still have questions or uh, as they come up, please do reach out to us at podcast at hornady.com because we'd love to do another uh, Quinlan's Corner. Oh, dear. <laughs> they yeah. had to do it. Yeah. Hey, you back me into a corner, I can get kind of scrappy, so look out. Watch out. I'm across the table. You better watch out. <laughs> He's got long reach over there. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, like Seth said, I've com- compiled a lot of these questions, um, and we're just going to try and go through as many as we can in a reasonable amount of time for a podcast. Yeah, I think most of them geared towards Jaden, obviously, because yep. he's he is really diving into some heavy stuff, and uh, like he caveats every podcast he's ever been on on the ballistic study, you know, we don't have a textbook out here, and we do have full-time jobs outside of the podcast, so if we, yeah, we probably could sit down and take four hours to prepare and take notes and get like everything to the Nat's ass type of accuracy. Uh, but this is a conversational podcast. Could, but we can't. We, yeah. We have a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we do get some things wrong from time to time. We misspeak a little bit. Sometimes an analogy maybe doesn't work in your head like it works in our head. So yeah, um, yeah it's a conversational podcast and we're just kind of off the cuff here. Yep. But I think, I think it's working too. Like the oh, amount yeah. of, you know, positive stuff that we've got from the comments and the people reaching out uh seems to be though even those you know that we're going to make some mistakes and we're going to say some things that don't work for some uh it is working for others so if it doesn't work majority yeah and if it doesn't work for some hey that's that's uh, our responsibility to go back and either try to reframe that in a way that that does work for them or um or if there's a mistake made definitely correct that so yep well the first one isn't really pertaining to ballistics so much that that we've talked about but a guy wrote in uh dwight via email uh to podcast at horny.com and he said are strain gauges really that comp- complicated to use i'm not trying to diminish what the hornady lab techs do and i really don't have a good sense of what an actual strain gauge setup looks like it's just one of those things that makes me wonder why hasn't moore's law affected this uh previously he talks about 
how um, velocity, you know, trackers, magneto speeds, labradars have become so prevalent. Mm. Uh, why haven't strain gauges at home pressure reading? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, your velocity is a really important thing, and we, like he says, you've seen the the evolution of of measurement tools and the price come down and the availability of different kinds and all that. Why haven't you seen that on the pressure front, which is arguably more important because that's a safety aspect, right? Sure. Um, yeah, really good question. Probably it's mainly because there isn't a demand for it on the consumer level would be my assumption. Um, I don't work in the, in the field of pressure measurement device manufacturing or running that business, but that would be, that would be my guess. It's always been built for kind of manufacturing or industrial purposes Mm -hmm. and strain gauges in particular. I mean, they can give you a idea or a direction on pressure, you know, more or less, or or kind of a somewhat of a quantification of it, but it's it's nowhere near accurate enough, in my opinion, to rival, you know, the other methods that are used in the modern day method of measured pressure. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, you have to give it a pressure for your initial reading. A baseline. To base the rest of them off of. And how, how does one know that? You really can't. Yeah. I mean, you would essentially have to, uh, you know, almost like there's reference ammunition that's used right. to assess the condition of a barrel um, within, say, SAMI. Uh, you could do something along those lines, but but that becomes div- there's not a there's not a well established system to support that. Um, so yeah, I don't. Uh, and then you you know you you run the mercy of all the variables that you can't understand or quantify at just the user level. You know the the type of steel in your barrel and and the sure. exact dimensions that are left and how that thing's going to handle that stress, which it's measuring. Um, there's just a lot of assumptions. Yep, I I couldn't agree more. I think it would be it would be uh it would be great if there was a consumer level product uh on the level of say a modern day chronograph that gave you pressure measurements that'd be fantastic. Oh I my mean, gosh. We deal with problems galore um of of people assessing pressure measurements based off, you know, uh call it the archaic methods of how the cartridge case looks or how the bolt, bolt lift. Yeah, the, how the action feels, whatever these different very broad metrics are that can be present when there's pressure. They can also not be present when there's pressure. I mean, there's not a one-to-one correlation there. Um, so it would be cool if there was a tool out there to, to measure that at the consumer level. But not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Awesome. That's a good answer. Yeah, you make some, some super good points there. Um, a comment from YouTube on the BC and bullet drag video. Uh, lower Mach gives a more normal shock, which has greater losses than the oblique shock at higher Mach. Yeah, so kind of what that's referencing we went through those pictures where we were observing that you know the shock waves were were changing position and the amount and all that kind of stuff we were using that to explain that cd verse mock graph um and he's just kind of given some some more explanation to that is essentially what that comment is oh, okay all right so another uh youtube comment uh some pretty stout criticism here uh but let you touch on that uh, Jaden mock number is a function of Reynolds number and that is coming from the mouth of a so-called senior ballistician way to go America <laughs> yeah uh, stout's a good description for that um hey rightfully so so I made a I made a mistake there in uh in talking about mock number and Reynolds number both of those things are really important uh, we were talking about bullet drag and explaining that CD versus mock graph when when uh when I did that Obviously, as we continued in that conversation, you saw us um, concentrate on temperature, which is your main driver. So essentially, Mach number is is dependent upon the temperature and the gas that you're working with. 
Um, luckily in our atmosphere, that's pretty much a constant. So the only variance is going to be the temperature, which is what we went into. Um, Reynolds number deals more with the types of flow that are going to exist, which are still present and part of that CD Versmont graph. Um, they're kind of they're kind of tied together. But yeah, he's he's right. Uh, I did make a mistake there. Hey, I'm I'm going to do that sometimes. You know, we're kind of doing this from the seat of our pants. So uh, first, I apologize. That's my responsibility. But yeah, I made a mistake. Yeah, and he's the only one that caught it. Must be a smart cookie. Well, mm. uh, yeah, I was going to say across the table, you could have told me almost anything. Uh, uh, Just eating it up. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a baby bird. That's right. Um, so this is an interesting one. Not really a question, but a comment. Um, Jaden, on a podcast that you weren't even in on, uh, Seth, you you and I certainly were, but a guy said, um, I personally think synergy can make a considerable difference when talking about how well a rifle shoots or doesn't. Three people can shoot the same rifle but not shoot the same size group. Same three on a completely different rifle setup and results could differ again. Uh, and he's he's absolutely saying just my opinion of course uh, this is on the custom rifle podcast but mm-hmm. i kind of have some thoughts on that do you have any thoughts about uh, about that comment yeah i'm not not sure i'm well versed in synergy um but what it sounds like to me is that uh you know you get three different people shooting a rifle and you get three different results well there's all kinds of variability from the input the shooter that's shooting the rifle but there's also you know rifles don't do the same thing every time you shoot them it really depends on on the sample size, um, you need that to be high enough to become stable to make comparisons between things. So, if he's saying that a couple people lay down and each shoot a three-shot group or a five-shot group, yeah, most certainly I wouldn't expect the exact Probably same results every time. Do different things. Yeah. yeah. So you have to get your 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 sample size high enough, and that will likely be a whole nother podcast in the future. Yeah. yeah. Well, Preston, what's your thoughts on that one? You said you had some some insight to that. Well, mine went the, mine went the same exact way. Oh, okay. He he doesn't say how many shots are in yeah. the group so yeah i'm assuming well, three or five likely three probably you but mentioned doing a separate podcast and we will but yeah i feel like the general populace isn't shooting enough uh in a group size to get the actual dispersion of their rifle system and so they see a lot of cloudy data from yeah three five even ten shot group uh, Seth, this one's for you. We talked about our preseason pronghorn plans. Yeah. That's coming up. Yeah. Um, but if gentleman said, I'm not being from the USA, please explain how these tag systems work. And you've hunted, you, you know, of, of several different states. Yeah. Talk about tag systems. And sure. How that goes down. Yeah. I'm not sure how it works in Europe. So maybe he could uh, leave a comment yeah. on that. Well, uh, here in the U.S., every state is different for the most part. Um, and their either their game and parks department or their uh, department of uh, natural resources, wildlife. yeah, fish and wildlife, they will allocate a certain number of tags uh, for a certain area, and within the state, uh, you will have specific wildlife areas, and there will be a specific number of tags available in that area, and not everybody's going to get one of those tags, and they have a certain allotment for residents and non-residents, and then the states will have. Uh, the western states anyway and i'm some of the eastern states as well like iowa for example with white-tailed deer illinois probably illinois i would assume yeah it's those big you know pipe hitter type white-tailed uh territories anyways they'll have a uh, a system in place to where you can apply for a tag and if you don't get it you either they'll have a bonus points system or a preference point system to allow you to build up credit essentially 
uh, so that every year you go into the uh, tag drawing uh, with a little bit better chance than you went in before. And eventually you'll be able to draw those tags. So uh, there are some states like Nebraska where if you want to hunt deer with a rifle, for the most part, nobody cares. Come over here and do it. <laughs> and uh, tags are cheap and uh, uh, you can just buy them over the counter for the most part. But uh, even here in Nebraska, there are places where to control the population and to try to better management, better manage it, excuse me, for either for trophy quality or for, uh, you know, just the, the herd health, um, they will restrict the amount of tags and uh, it becomes a big game. You know, if you're not familiar with the, the whole drawing process in a lot of these states, it's just a big game and it's a frustrating game to play. And uh, uh, there is a phenomenon called point creep where you are saving up points to draw a certain tag in a certain unit and when you started saving points it would take let's say you know hypothetical it take five points well five years later you're ready to draw the tag but now so many people have been building up points it don't take five it takes seven and then so you get to seven and now it takes eight and then it takes nine and it's kind of a, a big game but again um you know they're hopefully these states are using science to uh, dictate the level of permits available for the resident, the non-resident, and uh, you know, doing it with the herd's health in mind. Anybody else got anything to add on that? I would say, uh, and it's frustrating. It can be frustrating. Every state is diff- definitely different. Some states are a true lottery, mm-hmm. okay, and then some of them are, are literally are preference points based. So in your example of point creep, that I would call that a preference-based tag system. So if you have five points, you get the tag before somebody with four points. Yep. In a lottery system like Nebraska's elk herd, um, for example, you might have five points, but you get your name thrown into the hat five times. It's not like you can get it before the guy yeah. with one well, point because they're drawn like a, out of a hat. Like a, the bonus point system where, yeah, yeah you get more entries, uh, but it's still anybody's. Yeah. whoever. Yeah. I'm sure it's a computer, but anyway. Maybe they do put him in a hat. Do you think they actually put him in a hat? Oh, they have this definitely. old Abe Lincoln yep. top hat. I bet Colorado these days has got to be a huge hat. Big hat in Colorado, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Jaden, back to you. This is that same gentleman that comes at you with a high level of enthusiasm, let's say. But he says, your example about the rocket launch is incorrect, totally out of place, and confusing. At the launch, the rocket indeed points itself into the wind because the wind is pushing on it. The fins at the bottom offer a much higher resistance to the wind than the other parts, so there is a torque that makes the nose turn to the wind. This is fundamentally different from the mechanism you try to explain that happens to a rocket at high velocity in the flat fire approximation. For the flat fire approximation to work, it is necessary that the rocket or a bullet moves at a high velocity at least two orders higher than the wind velocity, along the whole trajectory you analyze. This fundamental condition is not fulfilled at the launch. The rocket does not interact with the wind the same way through its nose as it does at high velocity, and I don't think that I need to explain it to you further. He's got a way with words. Um, Well, again, he's not wrong there, but I know that I caveated multiple times during that podcast that, hey, this isn't the same thing, but it's true enough, I think is what I had said, that we can convey it in a way that people might understand it better. 
And that was the whole goal. Obviously, I said that a rocket and a bullet are not the same thing and they interact differently. So um, sure, definitely appreciate that level of, uh, of criticism. It's always good to have that, you know, keeps you in check. Um, that wasn't the goal. And I, I will counter that with saying the mass majority of the feedback that I've seen um, from, from those analogies and from that specific podcast is that it was helpful in a way that people hadn't heard before. They had heard how wind affects a bullet. Um, but it never really stuck with them. It was never anything tangible. Again, I use the rocket analogy because it's something that we can see, right? So we can observe that in more than just some theoretical uh, drawing in our mind of, of words that are coming out. You can actually watch that happen. And the fact that it functions in the opposite regard as the bullet, right? It has it goes upstream instead of having deflection downstream from, from the way we had described it. Uh, it was effective in that manner. So again, when we're giving this podcast, we're we're, attemp we're attempting to cast a net that that encompasses as many different listeners and their their level of understandings as possible. So um, appreciate the appreciate the criticism. Uh, it's always good to have that. Uh, but our intention was not to describe everything to the 100% technical accuracy in a way where 90% of people get lost because that's what's been done up to this point. I mean, we're not the first people to describe wind deflection. You can go back and read all kinds of books and go through all kinds of stuff of listening to people describe it. And the majority of the time when, when most people leave those descriptions or those readings, they don't have any a higher level of understanding than they did from the get-go. So the goal was to do it in a different way, or hopefully it would be more understandable by more folks. Sure, sure. Um, and he did mention after that the part about the crosswind weighting factors he liked, especially that a lot of trained snipers and experts spread BS in their YouTube videos about it. So, a nice yeah. thing. Hey, good deal. A little cherry on top. Okay, so another YouTube comment. Uh, this is the very information that, sh that should be pushed, and shooters should know. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to Jaden's assessment on load development and the truth of, num truth of the number of samples required to distinguish between changes in the load and the respective changes or the perception thereof in group size. I like the use of the word perception a lot in that question. Yeah, you phrased it nicely. He did, um, and probably understands some of the answer, too. Uh, we've done a ton of testing on that. I think that should be a podcast in itself, because there's a deep dive there, and, and it justifies the time of its own podcast. Yep. Uh, but I, I would say that generally in statistics, uh, when your sample size gets to 30 or more, you're getting into good territory, and that's for good reason. Another great question. I can't remember exactly which podcast this one was on, maybe the hunting ammo lines, but of your hunting bullets, which is the toughest or slowest to open between SST, ELDX, or interlock from 6.5 to 30 cal? Who wants that one? Uh, I'll hit the wave tops and then Jaden can get into the specifics, but generally uh, he could read his list of bullets backwards and that would be the toughest to the, to the thinnest, which would be the interlock would expand the slowest, the ELDX right in the middle. Um, depending on the range and velocity, and Jaden could go into that because he helped design that, and there's some really unique features for that. And then the SST is going to be the most rapid expanding bullet with the thinnest jacket and the polymer tip to set that thing open. You want details now? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, the ELDX <laughs> is going to be both the slowest and the fastest expanding, depending on velocity. Yeah, that one's different, Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, you're dealing with three totally different bullet designs there, especially from like a historical standpoint, you know, the, the interlock designer that exposed lead spire point design, um, obviously predates both the SST and the ELDX. 
um, decades. Yeah. And the benefits of that bullet is it's, it's, you know, world renowned for expansion, right? It works really, really well for that. Um, it does it at, at lower velocity impacts cause it has that big amount of lead up front. So it's easy for it to expand the, the downside of that bullet is it's aerodynamics. Um, you know, that, that point is pretty big and most of them are a, are a flat base. There are some boat tail designs in there, but aerodynamically they're not uh, comparable to what we have in the modern day. And then you see the move into the SST, which essentially was the first, you know, uh, polymer-tipped, more sleek aerodynamic design from Hornady. And uh, that bullet, uh, although a, a, a king of its time in aerodynamics, um, can't, can't compare to the LDX, which is essentially the next step in evolution of the aerodynamics. So um, you just see a, a slow, steady increase in how efficient the bullets are, uh, and that extends your, your range or your minimum velocity because as you go from interlock to sst you retain velocity better with the sst so that means that pushes you further downrange that you can use that bullet within its intended design and then when you go from sst to eldx it extends that envelope even further because it retains velocity even better yeah but i think you could group all three of these together and say they are meant to dump energy into the animal they're they're expanders they're rapid expanders they're mm-hmm. not just punching holes through yeah. stuff well and i'd say rapid controlled expansion because on yes. on each one of those bullet lines, you're going to have a tapered jacket. The jacket's going to be thicker at the bottom and in its bearing surface than it is up front. And that taper is most aggressive in that ELDX. It'll have the thickest base, the thickest bearing surface, and then probably some of the thinnest uh, up there towards the nose. And that's so that it expands rapidly, uh, at a, not rapidly, it expands easily when your velocities decayed, say at, you know, five, six, seven hundred yards. But then it's got that thick jacket. So as it's expanding, it's holding together for those high velocity impacts. And both other bullets, the SST and the interlock, they do feature a tapered jacket to help control expansion, but uh, none of them more tapered than the LDX. And then all three also include the interlock ring, which helps hold that jacket to the core. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on, you know, if we're talking traditional range, say 400 yards and in, um, you know, the interlock and the LDX are going to ex- expand the slowest and be the most controlled. And the SST is going to be the quickest to more directly answer the question. Sure. Awesome. Another gentleman uh, from YouTube. Uh, Thanks for the information. I understand that very technical points can be difficult to put in non-technical terms. Good job. A true mark of intelligence. Sorry, I don't want to make your head too big. I didn't realize I was just reading the nice Yeah, he's just (laughs) filling your bucket here. Yeah. Yeah. But he also says, how does the humidity affect dynamics? In Arkansas, we have a very high humidity during the summer when shooting. In the spring through the summer, dropping dropping to half of that during winter. Yeah, humidity has an effect, but it's generally small in comparison to all the other things. So when you think about, say, the environmental uh, units that you're concerned with in shooting, uh, temperature, pressure, humidity, pressure has a correlation with your altitude. So those two kind of go hand in hand. Um, Of those three or four, however you want to look at it, uh, humidity has the least impact, and so it's it's not really heavily concentrated on like temperature and pressure are sure. especially at a traditional range i mean 400 500 yards and in yeah, all, yeah. almost negligible. A, uh, yes yeah other sources are uh, far eclipsing changes in humidity's effect on your point of impact cool well the next question also from youtube i got a question about the six degree of freedom if anyone can answer it what would it be used for i mean if we use a ballistic calculator it's to predict where a bullet we shoot would land 
Even if the end user would have what they need to get the right tools to put that initial yaw in, we could only get that number from shooting that bullet and get the angle to input into the calculator. But that would defeat the purpose of using a calculator to know where to aim if we have to shoot a bullet first, then get data that the calculator needs to tell us where to aim. Or, is that some, or would that be something uh, more useful for reach, research and development of projectiles? Yeah, definitely more useful for research and development type stuff. Uh, that's what we use it for here. Um, it does seem counterintuitive that you have to test the bullet to get the inputs that you need to get the calculation for the bullet. Uh, so he's he's definitely tracking there. Um, but you can get some valuable info from that, especially with like your pitch and yaw rates and stuff like that. That um, yes, you might not know the exact orientation it comes out at, but that's one step closer to uh, the ultimate accuracy in your in your prediction. He's definitely doing better than me, though. That's for <laughs> sure. It hadn't even come to my mind. Um, so this one is uh, another one from YouTube. Uh, the 1,000 feet per second muzzle velocity bullet might drift less per second than the 3,000 feet per second muzzle velocity, but will it drift less over the entire distance given that it takes so many more seconds to get there? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, that analogy isn't put out a whole lot, or that comparison isn't put out a ton, so it can catch people a little off guard. But the, the purpose of that was uh, we had essentially talked about <clears throat> another way to prove that wind deflection was tied to the lag time was we took a, you know, a, a supersonic bullet, and then we took that same bullet and shot at subsonic and it exposed them both to, say, a 10-mile-an-hour crosswind. And that if you looked at it from a time-of-flight perspective, you know they, they had spent an equal amount of time in the air, that subsonic bullet had less wind deflection than the supersonic one did. And the point of that was to was to convey that lag time dependence of wind deflection. It can be a bit confusing, um, and, and he's exactly right. If instead you looked at it from a range perspective, let's say instead of drawing a, a line in the sand of time, you know, one second time of flight or whatever it may be, you did uh, 800 yards. Most certainly you're going to have more observed wind deflection on target with the subsonic load because its time of flight is so much longer getting there, but that... Uh, that doesn't mean that the wind deflection is not tied to lag time. The opposite of that is true. It is tied to lag time, and that first example kind of exercises that. And so this this person also had another follow-up question, and maybe one not so easy to, uh, to answer, but uh, how do I become a ballistician? What's the career path? I think there's a couple different avenues for it. Um, you know, obviously some of the engineering fields are are strong suited for it mechanical engineering or aeronautical engineering um physics in general it's very heavy in that i'm not aware of a single course of study uh you know or, or curriculum that that gives you a degree in ballistics i'm not aware of that necessarily it takes a whole lot of different fields i mean understanding um i mean physics is probably the most encompassing one you know because you're you're dealing with all aspects of it um thermodynamics come into play uh, it, it depends on the field of ballistics too. You know, you have three internal ballistics, external ballistics, terminal ballistics. Um, I'm fortunate to get to dabble in all three of them. And yeah, you touch a whole, whole bunch of different areas of study or, or education, I guess, in that. I would say that, uh, there's also not a huge, uh, group of people in the industry actively searching for ballisticians. Yeah. Yeah. You there's know, not like, many. Yeah. Right. Like there's only, I mean, if you're, if you're focused on firearms um yeah there's i mean there's not a whole lot of companies that have the equipment to justify having a ballistician you know to have the 
the the laboratory like we do and then yeah how many do you need times however many companies there are that that could justify them. it's a pretty pretty small field so I, that's probably why you don't see a college that you could get a degree in ballistics yeah and it's probably relatively challenging to get in those small amount of places that need a ballistician yeah well uh take uh jacob morrow uh our new uh ballistic lab technician um you know he's on his way to becoming a ballistician and his first step was talking to Jaden and joining the air force doing doppler radar drag reduction and or drag analysis rather and uh getting his foot in the door here at hornady doing something else that i mean related to bullets and accuracy and that kind of stuff but uh, and then just being patient yep. and, yeah. and learning and, and, you know, seeking out education and knowledge, uh, as available and, you know, just kind of learning, you know, trial by fire, uh, formal education. Yeah. Military education is kind of all encompassing to get him here and to get him on the path. Yeah. I think the most important thing is passion though. Oh yeah. If you've got the passion for it, you'll find a way. Yeah. That, those are some excellent points. Uh, another YouTube comment. Thank you for the explanations. I had previously not understood why the BC had a larger impact on wind drift than I would expect from just slightly reducing time of flight. Uh, this is where he gets to his question and or comment. I'm afraid the crossing the river analogy does not work for people who have actually experienced, who actually have experience in swift water though. The problem is the gradient of water speed, which is similar to wind gradient slow flow near the bank and faster flow away from the bank as the water gets deeper the bow of the boat encounters increasingly rapid lateral flow as it moves away from the bank turning it away from the flow rather than into it if you push a canoe out into a fast flowing river it will immediately point downstream instead of pointing into the flow otherwise i understood the concept of lag time just had to ignore your example the rocket analogy doesn't work for me either since I know that almost all larger rockets are controlled by guidance systems that counteract crosswind effect. I guess I should play with fireworks more. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, again, you know, I'm I'm using analogies that 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 are that are trying to they're they're different and they're trying to get to people in a way that is not just the standard, well, this is how you answer this question, you know, because we know those aren't effective. They've been around forever. So um, the, the, the kayaks in the river analogy was just to give a different way to understand what, what I was trying to describe there with how those three different things respond to, to that flow, which is essentially what wind is. The thing to keep in mind there is that there's, that you, you have to concentrate on, on the bullets, uh, the relative velocity effect vector with how fast it's moving and the wind, you know, those are two totally different values. You know, your bullets traveling at thousands of feet per second and a river or whatever is, is not, you know, it's right. in the teens, you know? Um, so you have to keep those two things in mind, but, uh, again, most of the feedback we we've got said that that analogy helped. So I apologize. It didn't work for you. You're not going to catch everybody. Um, but sounds like he already understood it anyway. Uh, again, to his rocket point, along with the other comment on rockets, I, I had said that you probably uh, need to scale down your idea of rocket for that analogy. Yeah, I I had said that you know they're they're two different things, but we're going to use the analogy simply to convey the fact uh, that it's doing the opposite of what a bullet would do. All right, another YouTube comment. Uh, this one from the which ammo line would you choose? Maybe they could expand on why they refuse to make any 260 Remington ammunition. I saw it in their catalog once, but they no longer, as far as I can see, offer any 260 ammo as it is a direct competitor to the 6.5 Creedmoor. 
You know, the cartridge that has done nothing that previous 65264 can do equally or better. They stood on all that came before in the world of 6.5mm cartridge and ammunition makers and picked a cool name in Creedmoor. Package it and send every single gun rider to Africa, North America, and anywhere else to hunt for, plebis- for publicity junkins and for them to use the 6.5 Creedmoor so they'll write it as the end-all be-all cartridge in the 65264. And you need not look any further than to their 6.5 Creedmoor. I apologize if I'm stumbling at all. This is not the most well-written comment I've ever seen. Uh, he says, am I biased? No. However, when I get my latest issue of Shooting Times and there's five articles on the 6.5 Creedmoor in one magazine, yes, I question Hornady's advertising and free hunting trips to promote their effort to kill and any and all competitors to their beloved 6.5 Creedmoor. All I can say is literally get a non-Hornady biased reloading manual and compare it the 6.5 Creedmoor to other 6.5 cartridges and you'll see Hornady offers nothing of any percentage worth switching to their cartridge for. In fact, the Creedmoor hamstrings the round and it is not able to perform with various other bullet weights in the 6.5mm family can and the Hornady round cannot do to a smaller case. Again, apologize for the phrasing here. Not saying it's a bad round, by no means, but a 260 rim, 65 Swede, 264 mag, or even 65 rim mag can't duplicate or, in many cases, well exceed the 65 Creedmoor. Mm. I'd like to answer this one because, well, Jaden can answer too, but uh, being on the media side of it now. Um, so, first off, we still do make 260 Remington ammunition. We still do our 129 grain uh, Superformance SST for hunting load. And in ELD match, we do 130 grain ELD match uh, ammo. And the reason those bullet weights are selected is because the 260 Remington has a standard Sammy twist rate of one in nine, which is insufficient to properly stabilize the really, you know, the long, heavy, popular match bullets in 6.5. So we still do have some factory ammo options out there for the 260 Remington shooter. Um, And I I mentioned the Sammy twist rate because I think that's that's the prime example of, of what the Creedmoor does that the 260 Remington doesn't. And the 260 Remington properly hand loaded and with a, with the proper chamber and twist rate it's a great cartridge you can really push that thing to do some cool stuff but you can't let everybody do that because not everybody hand loads so when you're married to sammy dimensions and standards the 260 remington leaves some on the table mm-hmm. um you know not only does it lack the the necessary twist rate uh with the case length uh and the allowable head height you know, you're not going to be able to run the 147 grain or the 143 grain ELDX because it's simply too long. Um, so for the hand loader, the 260 is great, and, and the 260 improved would be even cooler. Um, but again, if you're a custom hand loader or you got a you know, custom rifle, then run, run whatever you want to. Um, the 6.5 Creedmoor uh, allows for the really long, super low drag bullets got the proper head height to seat those bullets out where they belong it's got the right twist rate for them uh, and then all the dimensions are standardized so you can buy the 400 ruger american and it's going to shoot lights out or you can buy the four thousand dollar custom rifle and it will also shoot lights out um, and kind of that goes into my next point with uh, why you're seeing five articles or you know several articles per magazine on the 6.5 creedmoor and you know these these writers they they don't want to write negative things. So if you're getting a gun to do a review on, do you want to get a you know a standard Sammy 300 Win Mag chamber or a Sammy 308 chamber? 
Or do you want a 6.5 Creedmoor chamber, which you know is going to absolutely pound knot holes with everybody's ammo? Um, so if it were me, I'm going to do the review on the gun chambered in something that I know is forgivingly accurate and is going to shoot well. And, uh, and it's, it's popular for that matter. So um, uh, hopefully that at least somewhat satisfies that question about, you know, is it, uh, you know, are we just trying to push the cartridge because it's ours? Um, no, we're pushing it because it's very easy to be accurate with. And as far as the, you know, the all expense paid trips to Africa and stuff, you know, is the 6.5 Creedmoor a good hunting cartridge? Yeah. For the appropriate game at the appropriate distances, the 6.5 Creedmoor is a fine hunting cartridge. Although there are a lot better ones. And I think, uh, you know, you ask anybody here at Hornady, will be the first to tell you, is it a versatile cartridge that you could shoot, go hunting with? Absolutely. I've killed a bunch of animals. I'm not taking it elk hunting, you know, would I? Yeah, with the appropriate distance and bullet, mm-hmm. but it's not my first choice. And those other cartridges mentioned, you know, the 264 Wind Mag, uh, the 65, um, you know, the 260, 65, 284, 65 Sweet, all those, they all have great attributes, but none of them lack, or excuse me, all of them lack the standard dimensions and standards that make them easy to be accurate. And factory ammo's got the bullet options that people want that is consistent. And I think that's one thing that the Creedmoor has in spades is regardless if you buy a really affordable rifle or a really expensive one or really affordable ammo or really high quality, uh, incredibly, uh, you know, precise match ammo, it's all going to shoot reasonably well from any of those combinations. And that's because it was designed for that. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, is not easy to digest for some people that really don't like the Creedmoor for not liking its sake. but um, you know, it, it just so happened that it fits a lot of uses. I mean, it's super, super utilitarian. Yeah. Whitetail deer, antelope, uh, Everybody matches, loads ammo for it now. And everybody loads ammo for it. It's just, just ours. It's just easy. And so, uh, you know, that's my, my take on it is that, yeah, is, is there better hunting cartridges out there? Absolutely. Depending on what you're hunting, um, you know, for hunting things like whitetail deer or antelope, it might be one of the better cartridges out there. Um, super easy to shoot, easy to be accurate, low recoil. Um, I've shot it, you've shot it, we've all shot it in matches for years. Um, versatile factory ammo is great. The amount of rifles out there that you can just go to the store and buy that have all the stuff you would want in a custom rifle, um, and you're buying it off the shelf. What more does the guy want? So, I don't yeah. know, that's my take on it. Yeah, and at this point, you kind of have to look at demand as well. It's like, oh, yeah, there's no question. Yeah, the demand isn't there. Go to any gun store and look at the shelf and there's not a bunch of 260s sitting there but there happen to be a bunch of 6.5 Creedmoors How, what do you think we're going to do make a bunch of 260 Remington ammunition no we're going to go where the demand is mm-hmm. so we still have offerings for those people that have those guns and want to get those guns yeah I think people get kind of romanticized with maybe their first gun or you know they had a 264 Win Mag way back and 6.5 Creedmoor can't do anything but it also suffered from the same twist rate ailment oh yeah uh, it's the 260 remington or, or many others but uh, and then maybe Jaden, you can go into that a little bit but the standard standardization process through sammy just we have to stick to it yeah for a lot of good reasons yeah i would agree with everything that both of you said and maybe just try to add a little bit to it of the creedmoor is arguably the most popular cartridge in the united states for a couple of years now i would mm-hmm. say um and you don't get to that position by simply marketing force alone 
that cartridge has to be able to stand on its own merits uh, to be able to become that widespread. For other ammunition manufacturers to pick it up, obviously there has to be a, a business interest, right? There has to yeah. be demand enough right. to justify them adopting that cartridge and loading it. Money. Um, so all those aspects would would go against what he's saying. Um, and I understand, you know, just because the 6.5 Creedmoor is as popular as it is, doesn't mean that all those other cartridges are useless and can't do anything. That's not the point. I think taking a look at things from that historical perspective and understanding that at the times when all those other 6.5s he listed were standardized, there was no 6.5-147. There was no 153 grain A-tip. The bullets of that era, all of those cartridges were designed with those in mind. And you can see that in hindsight, when you go back to the 9-twist, the heaviest, sleekest bullets of those eras, the 9-twist would handle those. So why would you design it for some future unknown? You wouldn't. So what happens? Things evolve. We learn things and, and make bullets in new ways where they're better, they're more efficient. Things keep progressing. Well, you reach a point where in projectile design, you've made things so advanced, you no longer have a cartridge that can use the, the great projectile you just designed. So what are you going to do? Stop projectile design and quit advancing? No, you're going to design a new cartridge that can take into account all of these new projectile designs and be able to use them. And the fact that that's what the 6.5 Creedmoor is, is no throwback to saying the old ones are useless, but they're limited by their time that they were designed and standardized. Very well put. Yeah, unless you're I think custom rifles. For, forget that the 6.5 Creedmoor was out for many, many years before it really became in vogue or super popular. Right. Like a long time. Introduced in 2007. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what it was in 2007. Did you? No, I didn't know. Yeah, I, I learned about it in like 2012. Yep. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting little caveat. Um, anybody can answer this one here. It's a YouTube comment. Uh, he, this gentleman, I believe, needs something in the super performance line. He wants velocity, 300 wind mag and 308 Winchester. Thinking about trying the CX bullet. I don't know. What do you guys think? Mm, well, I'm, we might be on the same page. Matt, not. I don't know. For me, uh, I got to know what he's hunting. Uh, so I don't know what he's. You don't get to know. I don't know what he's after, but uh, my answer would be the same regardless. In my opinion, what I would do. Wind mag or 308 Winchester, whichever, is go superformance and go with the lightest CX bullet that we offer. Um, you know, with the 300 Wind mag, I think we do 165 grain CX in superformance. Now, that is an absolute hammer. So those bullets quickly gained a reputation for just being devastating. Excellent terminal performance, and they thrive on speed. The faster you drive them, the better they work. So you go with a lighter bullet weight to get the velocity up. Plus, it's a superformance propellant, so you're getting that, you know, one to 200 feet per second over a standard velocity with that bullet weight. And now you're screaming, got all the velocity, but you know that that bullet is going to hold up really well. You're not going to sacrifice anything. It's going to retain 95% of its weight, likely going to give you an exit hole. Just, just the right way to do it, in my opinion. If you're going to go superformance, if you need that hot, nasty speed, I'd recommend going with the lightest CX bullet option that we offer. I don't think there's much more to say to that one. Nope. Nailed, Nailed it. it right on the head. Uh, Rusty asked a few questions on YouTube, but I'll skip to the really, really, really good one. Sorry, we're on a, on a little bit of a stretch for time here. But I used to buy a 1,284 AMAX a year, but then it came out that the tips were melting, so I had to switch to solid, co to solid copper bullets. I don't want mel melted plastic in my meat. Hey, good point. Um, 
the plastic isn't melting. The plastic tip isn't melting. It's actually deforming. It's just changing shape a little bit. And that's what we were observing in the drag curves uh, back when you see heat shield tip come out in both the ELD match and the ELDX. Um, so from a hunting perspective, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to worry about that. And essentially the effect between uh, either of those would, would be the same as far as the meat's concerned, I guess you could say. Yeah, at the point of impact, I believe the polymer is probably solid enough that it, there's not going to be any melted plastic. Yeah, and we, game. I mean, we recover bullets all the time out of out of animals that we hunt or in gelatin, ten uh, percent ordnance gelatin that we use as a test medium, and you recover the tip. I mean, uh, if if he's shot uh, animals with the those legacy bullets and he shot some with the new ones, the same state that he found the tip in in the old ones would be what he's going to see in the new ones. Yeah, and I've always thought that the tip melting was kind of an overstatement um, because it melting to you know most people think of like an ice cream cone melting in the sun, but it's simply reaching a temperature such that the oncoming air can make it deform, just yeah. change shape. So it's, yeah, it's not melting and dripping off. Right. It's just getting softer. This person said, get a whiteboard. A drawing worth a thousand words, smiley face. Well, we not did, my, you, one, we did not, you one better later on. Not Jaden's drawings. Not if you've seen my drawings. <laughs> that, that comment would get deleted. It looks like John quick. Madden up here trying to, dis, you know, to describe <laughs> the list that we've seen. Put the X over here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, he also says, by the way, I think the transonic region uh, begins as soon as shock appears on the bullet, M less than, but close to one, and ends when only the shocks are at the tip and behind the bullet. Again, we're trying not to get so technical that, that we lose folks. Um, and also a, a point of how that term is used in, in call it popular shooting culture, um, the term transonic. I would say is used in a way where it's maybe a little broader, outside of those bounds that he that he laid almost. out. Yeah, and so in in the conversation on that podcast, we were trying to address that aspect of it, kind of the popular culture reference to transonic, maybe not necessarily the technical Mach number um, right. boundaries of transonic. Uh, gentlemen on YouTube, I have listened to this twice on podcasts and once on YouTube. However, I do not quite get the windrift portion. You have mentioned that with AJ and spin drift that the nose of the bullet will point to the right and cause a drift to the right. Seems logical. However, in the wind drift section, you mentioned that a right wind will turn the nose into the wind to the right and drift to the left. Somehow I don't grasp that. What did I miss? Uh, so spin drift is tied to normal force and wind deflection is tied to bullet drag. So that's the important distinguishing difference there. Um, the way to think about the bullet drag part and wind deflection is that the bullet nose does orient itself to the right for a right to left crosswind and drag works in the opposite direction of the relative velocity vector. So being that the relative velocity vector is to the right from the crosswind that the nose points to the right slightly, that means the left is mostly back, but a little bit left. And so drag is working mostly back and a little bit left. So that's why you get bullet deflection to the left because it's enacted. The drag is what's causing that. The spin drift is caused by normal force. That's a different mechanism. Fair enough. I even got that one. I was thinking that was going to be a way more complex answer. I was like, oh, man, we're going to clear the schedule here, but oh, that was great. <laughs> all right. Here's an interesting one. And, and yeah, I don't think that it was brought up at all. And I've edited these podcasts. I've listened to these podcasts. I don't know that we, we talked about it. And maybe it's not a big deal, but um, you miss pre precipitation's effect on a bullet. Um, not much. A, you know, a, a bullet has a boundary layer of air that's around it. I mean, it would obviously affect the relative humidity levels. Um, no rain to rain, you know. But uh, 
outside of that, no, no, nothing really significant to discuss there. So in layman's terms, it's a downpour. You shoot a supersonic bullet, or maybe subsonic for that matter, rain's not touching it. No. I mean, we've shot in plenty oh, of yeah. circumstances where it's that way, and uh, they go where they're supposed to. Yeah, except uh, this is a perfect example of an old Marine Corps saying, rain affects the shooter, not the bullet. Good to go. <laughs> All right, an interesting question on YouTube. Awesome, thanks for the info. I'm about halfway through. That's inconsequential. But can you guys talk about barrel whip, barrel harmonics, and if that is a consistent direction and frequency, assuming all other variables, velocity, bullet engraving, alignment, etc., remain the same? My understanding of a node when reloading is when barrel whip is in the same position at the same time of the bullet and corking every time. Maybe that's wrong. I would agree with that as a maybe a definition, one of maybe many of what a node would be. Uh, that term's thrown around a lot <clears throat> within the shooting community. Yeah, it is. Um, but in reference to his question on like harmonics and stuff like, yeah, like that, um, yeah, they certainly exist. I think they're probably romanticized a little bit more in the modern day. They might have had more of an impact um, in the past. I think that the quality of our barrels... Um, Mainly how the bore is drilled in the steel has a big part to play in that. So one of the sources of uh, harmonics that you would see would be if the if the bore through the barrel is not straight, it has some change of direction to it. So you could view that as maybe like uh, if you held both ends and then spun the barrel around and you look through the center, it would look like the bore was almost like a jump rope. Uh, anybody that's chambered a barrel has probably observed that to a greater or lesser degree or seen it. Um, so when when the bullet is launched, um, that initial, call it direction that it's going on, you know, control constrained by the barrel, uh, left, right, up, down. Um, if there's a change in direction of that hole that it's moving through in the barrel, um, the bullet's forced to change direction. There's going to be some energy that's exchanged between the bullet and the barrel at that point, And that could, ex you know, excite the barrel or cause a harmonic response to it or a whip or however, you know, whatever term you want to use to describe it. Um, so... Could you, you know, could you develop a load? So I believe it was the optimal charge weight load. I think the textbook application of that was uh, at trying to identify a point in the barrel's whip where it changed direction, uh, and that would be your best load. Um, there's probably some efficacy to that, but I don't think it's nearly what people hold it up to be, especially in the modern era. I think there's uh, there's some other things that are going on. In, in the world of ballistics, it's always really difficult to isolate or, or control just one thing because everything influences everything else. Um, so it kind of becomes a garbled mess of, of the end result, you know. So, yeah, do, do harmonics exist? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, that's been proven, right? You can go back and look at... Uh, you know, like Harold Vaughn's work from Rifle Accuracy Facts, he did some mm. really good work there and, and laid descriptions out that were that were pretty consumable uh, by the average shooter. Um, that's a great book if you haven't read it. Um, but then also, you know, there's been some uh, material that's been released by the government on, uh, say, the effects of different uh, gas port configurations and stuff like that, like on machine guns and robbing that gas off of one side and not the other could, could bend the barrel, essentially, um, at that point stuff like that so yeah those effects are there but i think in popular shooting culture they're they're given more weight than they might should or you think you're making a positive effect and statistically it's still lost within the noise 
Yeah. You think you're seeing trends, but what you're really seeing is just I think statistical anomalies. And yeah. I think we'll have a big old podcast about that. It's another one for a statistics podcast. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. One topic I would like to hear about is the effect on pressure, resistance, fouling, or other issues from having a more aggressive twist rate than standard. Same question also for the external ballistics video. What are the negatives of a higher twist rate? Thank you. Well, the negatives of a higher twist rate is that any imperfections in the bullet itself, um, so variances in, say, the jacket thickness of like a match-style bullet, like a lead-core copper-jacketed bullet, if the jacket is more thick on one side of the bullet than the other, that takes the lead-core and it shifts it to one side. And what that does is it takes your center of gravity of the bullet and it shifts it off of the center line of the bullet due to its form or its shape, the center form. And so what you have there is a very similar situation to like an out-of-balance tire. And the faster you spin an out-of-balance tire, the worse the vibration gets. And a bullet is essentially the same thing. It's also the case of a bullet that exits the muzzle with an angle. It's crooked to some extent, which a bullet can engrave crooked into the barrel due to a whole bunch of different circumstances. Uh, net result is that it comes out pointed a certain direction. It's not perfectly straight. Both of those examples, the crooked bullet and the bullet where the center of gravity is not aligned with the center of form, the faster you spin them, the worse they become from a dispersion standpoint. So your group sizes will open up. So generally what you'll see is, uh, it's a, call it a one-to-one. -one. So if I had a 10-twist rifle uh, that was shooting one-inch one groups, uh, and then I went to a five twist rifle, I might expect that to shoot two inch groups, doubling the twist rate like that. Um, it can have some positive benefits on some of the really long aerodynamically designed bullets. There can be some drag benefits to it, but again, it comes at a trade off of, of your group size could be opening up. It doesn't necessarily mean it will, but it can. So uh, if you look at a lot of the Bentrest shooters, um, most of them went like the slowest twist you could possibly go. That's the reason. They they typically get better groups out of the slower uh, twist barrels than they do the faster twist barrels. Right on. Don't have to always go so fast. And uh, to, I want to hear Jaden's opinion on the pressure. Have you seen faster twist rates increasing pressure, all things equal? Not within reason. Um, and I would say, let's say we go from a you know, 6.5 Creedmoor 1 and 8 twist to a 1 and 7. Um, no, definitely not an increase in pressure. If you went to a one and one twist or something crazy like oh, that, yeah. maybe. But I mean, that's uh, that's Outside extreme enough that use. that's not testing that we've really looked at. I mean, what's yeah. the what's the what's the purpose of that? You know. Um, so in general, no, it it doesn't have a large correlation. Gain twists, though, we have seen some some evidence that uh, gain twist can lower it because the you know you take. Uh, Take two barrels, one's a standard rifling, one's a gain twist, and you shoot the both load, uh, the same load out of both barrels, and the gain twist barrel will produce a slower velocity and slower pressure by a given amount. Um, so that would that would maybe uh, err to there's less engraving force or something along those lines that's occurring in that barrel versus the other. Uh, but what we found is it's essentially a moot point. You got to up your charge weight to get back to the same velocity where you were at before, and now you're back at the same velocity and pressure you yeah. were, but at a higher charge weight. Um, and in general, that's uh, 
putting more powder through the barrel per shot is generally not good for all of the longevity things we're looking for in a barrel, whether it's fouling and maintenance or throat erosion or whatever. And I guess part three to that question, what about fouling? Does a, does a higher twist rate, in, twist rate increase fouling at all mm-hmm. that you've noticed? I think it could, uh, depending on many other specifics. You know, how much freeboard does this does the system have? What's the charge rate? What's the amount of propellant? What's the pressure that it's operating at? What type of steel is in the barrel? What's the rifling configuration? How many rounds are on the barrel? I mean, there's there's so many other things that are also an influence that it's hard to isolate that variable alone and say it does this or that. Um, but in general, again, if you, you say you took a 6.5 Creedmoor and you went from an 8 twist to a to a 7, um, no, you're not going to see a dramatic increase in, in fouling. Christopher says, where do you find max velocity for a 6mm Creedmoor? Sammy only has a 108 listed at 3050, 3050 feet per second, I think. Where would I find max velocity for a 105 so I could find my max load? While velocity is important and is directly tied to pressure, you can't simply use a max velocity per the SAMI recommendations as your way of defining maximum load because that's going to differ based on the burn rate of your propellant. You know, a max load in a, in a 6 Creedmoor, 41 grains of H4350 with a 108 is going to do about 3,000 feet per second. And 36 grains of Varget is only going to do about 2850. Both of them are going to have the max pressure, though. And pressure is what's important, not necessarily velocity. So um, definitely refer to a reliable reloading handbook published by a, you know, doesn't have to be ours, uh, certainly can be, but just a trustworthy reloading handbook to get your maximum charge weight. And uh, if you're looking for a certain velocity, isolate a propellant that gives you that velocity. But uh, yeah, you don't get a free lunch and all powders will produce different velocity at different pressure. And uh, one thing to be, uh, I guess, as a, as a add-on to that, it's not always velocity, but also RPM, you know, bullet performance. Uh, you know, you can spin a bullet apart, especially in six millimeter on down, you know, those smaller calibers. Um, you can absolutely overspin a bullet anytime you start approaching to and exceeding 300,000 RPMs, um, you know, regardless of what the velocity is, if you're, depending on what your twist rate is, um, that's something to be concerned with as well. Yep. And I'd say ideally from a, from, as a hand loader, from a hand loader's perspective, if you can find the reloading data uh, for the projectile that you're going to use from that company, that's great. Check for any differences in brass or primer. Those might make small differences as well. If not, um, check the powder manufacturer that you'd like to use as data. Um, those are kind of my two go-tos. Mm-hmm. From there, if you can't find it, then you're you're kind of knocking on the door of kind of doing your own thing. So always start low and work up. I would say just one more thing to add with Sammy though. Sammy is a great reference to go to and look at for a, you know, just a, a reference point that, hey, all the experts in the industry have agreed that um, the velocity tied to this 108 at max pressure is this. So regardless of whatever powder you use, if you're exceeding those velocities in that barrel length, you have pressure because the, that load that's been been published into the, the SAMI manual is kind of the uh, most efficient or most optimum mm-hmm. setup out there. So if you're exceeding that, yeah, you, you're probably in dangerous territory. So this one is a reply to a comment. Uh, this is from the SubX and Subsonic video. 
Jaden, you weren't even there, but maybe you can answer this if you'd like, or Seth, dive right, at, right in. But uh, one commenter said, all the testing of the sub-X 30 cal bullets I've seen shows the tip expanding to sub-caliber size, so barely better than heavy open-tip match bullets. Haven't seen anything about the 4570 or 450 Bushmaster. Do you have a response to that at all? Yeah, you're not going to get uh, traditional supersonic-style expansion with a subsonic bullet. I mean, expansion is tied to velocity, and the fact that you're operating at a lower velocity means you're going to get lower levels of expansion. Um, but the groundbreaking thing about the 190 Sub-X is it was really the first time that a a um, traditional lead-core bullet had been designed in a way where it would expand at subsonic velocities. So most subsonic ammunition up to that point uh, was using a Botel hollow point style design because you need that weight, you know, to generate enough pressure to to run a subsonic uh, firearm. Um, you don't have any terminal performance with those. It's all based on tumbling, and that's out of your control, and it's highly variable. So you get a bunch of different end results on the same shooting circumstance. Um, so once the bullet expands and it does it reliably, that means you get very consistent performance, no matter what the variables of the shot are. Um, but you're not going to get giant expansion with that. Um, there was some other projectile designs that were out there that were a monolithic design that would kind of expand, but there's many downsides to that. Um, one of them is certainly cost. Many of those bullets are made on a lathe, which is substantially more costly, and the material costs are higher. Uh, and in addition, generally, dispersion or accuracy is not great with those. Um, they they don't have the ability to fill the bore. They don't have any give to them. Um, so generally, you result with a bunch of in-bore angle when shooting those, and your accuracy is pretty bad. So the the sub X was a different animal um, altogether for that, and it really gave the shooter uh, an economical option to get decent terminal performance out of a subsonic load, which really hadn't been done commercially before. That is supremely accurate compared to I think prior, you know, expanding bullets mm -hmm. uh, subsonically. Yeah. But if you want to touch on, you know, most of these people are seeing testing, you know, or, or gelatin testing. I don't know if you want to touch on um, what you might see on YouTube versus what you can actually expect yeah certainly i mean we'll dive into that somewhat on the the terminal ballistics podcast which we need to do at some point but you'll see a bunch of different test mediums out there um really the one that you should look for is 10 percent ordnance gelatin um, that one's been shown historically to have a very good correlation to uh tissue uh, so live tissue and uh there's some other stuff out there like clear ballistics and wet phone books and frozen chickens and all kinds of different Gallons stuff of milk jugs um, filled with water just understand that um you know that assessing the the terminal performance of a bullet through a wet phone book tells you how that bullet performs through a wet phone book um 10 ordnance gelatin is uh dehydrated tissue that's rehydrated with water so it's as close as we can get to living tissue which has a certain moisture content and density um, the stuff you'll see with some of the clear ballistics or those clear blocks is they're more of like a like a fishing lure type material, and they simply don't have the moisture content. They don't give you the same results that, that you're going to see in 10% ordnance gelatin or in uh, live tissue testing. Yeah. So I guess summarize there, if you're seeing ballistic studies on gelatin on YouTube, likely you're not seeing ordnance gelatin. Well, it's expensive, uh, it it's stinky, expensive. it's hard to work with. It's hard to work with. There's, keep it cold. There's a yeah. timeline associated with it. Yeah. Uh, to touch on his uh, larger caliber sub-X statement rather than, than question, um, they perform amazing, and they, do, they expand, and they're transferring energy 
reliably and consistently. And that's something to, to drive home that, yeah, you're not getting 50 cent piece diameter expansion at a thousand foot per second, but you're getting caliber and a half or more expansion. Uh, and it's transferring the energy versus like you mentioned, a, a hollow point bullet or something that doesn't expand at all. That just tumbles over. Um, that's not a reliable way to do it. So these larger calibers, they are expanding and transferring energy and that energy transfer and that expansion is crucial for ethical quick kills. Uh, and then potentially our last question coming from YouTube, Matt says, would testing at night eliminate a lot of the noise and solar flare? Probably could. Um, the difficulty there would be you need to, you need to have an aiming reference, which I guess you could illuminate whatever it is that your point of aim is downrange that's associated with where the beam is pointed. Um, but that's not generally something that we've done a lot of. Because, uh, yeah, we are also fathers, husbands, got properties to take care of. We're going to come to this job with passion for 8 to 12 hours a day. But we've got to go home at night, too. Yep, kids got to eat. Very well put. Well, Seth, that's really all I have for questions. You want to round this thing out? Yeah. Well, we appreciate the questions. We really do. And, again, there are a ton of questions submitted uh, we try to answer a lot of them. Yeah, I know we, Preston's... We couldn't answer all of them, unfortunately. We no. just ran into time. Well, I mean, you know, this block of questions was really taken from the first ballistics podcast forward. So there's a lot of podcasts prior to that, you know, a couple dozen worth that we, you know, we tried to answer those questions either via Facebook, uh, the podcast at com email, or, or what have you. So these questions here, just from that block. So if you have more questions, you know, please submit them and we can continue to do these uh, all jokes aside from the, the Quinlan Corner thing, we can continue to do these because it gives us a chance, one, to interact with the customers a little bit more, which is awesome, and two, uh, you know, in the case that somebody misspeaks, we can correct that and, and get the right information out there. And again, we enjoy doing these conversational because I don't think anybody wants to listen to, to somebody sit here, you know, Mr. Poindexter with a textbook open, just, you know, kind of reading line from line. Like that's Let's not get entertainment value, and uh, you know we've got other things to do. So uh, the conversational aspect of it is nice; it's relaxing. Uh, I'm learning a ton so far. I know Preston's eating these up. He gets to listen to every podcast like a hundred times, uh, not a hundred, but multiple, multiple times. Um, so yeah, appreciate that, Jaden. Great job as always. Always wonderful insight, Preston. Thanks for for hammering out the questions. Much appreciated, guys. No problem. Everybody out there in podcast land, thanks for tuning in on this one, and we will catch you on the next one.